0: So joining us now is someone that I've wanted to have on for a long time. We, we got to know each other through some of the people at Basketball Insiders that he knew, and then he's been a guest at Sports Business Classroom the last couple of years, working in the Rockets organization for a while, then was a head coach at Northern Arizona, and most recently, player development coach for the Phoenix Suns. Cody Toppert, how are you doing?
1: Doing great, Nate. I'm excited to be on here. You're right, we've been been needing to do this for some time now so i'm I'm really excited to be be here tonight
0: yeah well and uh, I appreciate you saying that so let's get right to it here I wanted to have you on after game two of the finals because I know you you and everyone else in the nBA has been watching with rapt interest to to see this two good coaches two teams with a lot of versatile pieces a lot of pieces that require some creative solutions um so just your general thoughts uh, to start out here. Anything that's popped out to you from a, a coaching perspective in this series that maybe you wouldn't have been anticipated beforehand?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that I'd say I. there are certain things that maybe I didn't necessarily anticipate because I saw earlier in the season when Nick Nurse kind of had the foresight to you know, uh, sprinkle in a 3-2 defense, 2-3 defense throughout the year, kind of almost at random times. I could tell that he was kind of preparing for uh, potential adjustments that he needed to make uh, at particular times during, you know, whatever playoff type situation that they were in. And it just so happens that last night we saw, you know, one of the big uh, adjustments right after that eighteen-zero run by the Warriors, and that was going to a box and one. And for a good considerable amount of time, it kind of stifled. Uh, what the Warrior was doing. And I think that, you know, he got out of it exactly what he needed. He did not get the win, but he kind of put his team in that spot where they had momentum early, carried into halftime, came out and completely kind of looked at it like a different team. And they needed something to just kind of re-energize them and get them back in the game. They did that. They got it to a five-point ball game with under a minute to go. And obviously we know that if they would have gotten that that stop on that Iggy 3 – um, you know, they would have potentially had a chance to tie or take the lead with the last possession. So I think ultimately it achieved what he wanted, even though they didn't get the result that they were looking for.
0: So I think to me, a big reason why that worked was Klay Thompson was out of the game. Obviously, uh, they don't have KD. Uh, a boxed one works a lot better when there's a big one on the other team and then there there are fewer threats outside of that, specifically from a shooting perspective. Do you think that, If they go to that look, when Clay is available, it can work? Or is it going to be more of a when Steph is the only ball handler, the only scorer in the game type of look?
1: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? The the lineup, the crunch time lineup they were looking at last night, Cousins, uh, Quinn Cook obviously in there, Iggy, Draymond, and Steph. Um, Even Quinn Cook being an excellent shooter that we know he is, uh, hasn't necessarily been such high-pressure moments uh, in the past um so to me it just kind of made sense with that line about there if you add somebody like clay back into the mix i think then you've got to kind of readjust uh your strategy would be extremely risky then and, and you know are you going to go with the triangle and two i mean ultimately you're kind of faced with with these types of decisions uh when you're playing the golden state warriors right and you know for instance you take it back to you know uh Warriors against uh, the Trailblazers series, right? Trailblazers are back in the pick and roll and the handoffs. They're giving up those threes coming off of the high screens or handoffs. Um, you know, everybody's saying, hey, do you need to be at the level of the screen? Should you be blitzing these guys? You know, should you switch everything? I mean, there's a, a bunch of different solutions to the problem. But what we've noticed about the Warriors over the last five seasons is they seem to find the solution.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting. With the boxed one specifically – it's referred to as a gimmick defense. I, I think uh, I forget which warrior it was who said that after the game, and many people view it that way. I I never really cared for those kind of characterizations because what works works. There's no, there's not like oh you're being less of a man if you're playing zone or, <laughs> or you know you're doing what you need to do to stop the other team. Like using your brain doesn't mean that you're you know somehow wussing out or admitting that oh we can't stop these guys in a normal man-to-man or whatever. I mean, switching defense used to be thought of that way, right? Of, like, you're giving up if you're switching, basically.
1: For sure. People people would say that switching was, you know, the path of least resistance, the scheme that requires the least amount of effort, lazy, whatever the connotations. But what we've seen is that switching can be used as a weapon, right? If you switch aggressively, switch to deny, switch to take a away a three, switch to force a turnover, things like that nature, then it completely changes the game, and then switching becomes you know, an ability to kind of try to neutralize off ball screens, on ball screens. And if you have a lineup of versatile wing ish type defenders, now the shot clock becomes a factor and you try to hope that the opponent digresses into isolation. Right. So it can be a weapon. Same thing with the zone. Try telling Jim Beheim, obviously the, the zone doesn't work or whatever the case may be. Right. What you're looking for is uh, especially in playoff basketball, it's a game of adjustments, and those adjustments don't just come from game to game; they come from quarter to quarter, or even timeout to timeout. And you have to figure out how to, you know, sustain your runs, stop their runs, and and at the NBA level, we know like if you get up by twenty points in the first quarter, it's almost like a curse, right? Because it's always a game of runs.
0: So you mentioned the potential for adjustments. I don't know that they can go to that when you have either Clay or KD out there whenever he's going to be available. Those guys are just such tall shooters with such quick releases. You you can't give them the airspace on the perimeter that that defense might provide. But let's say they go to it end of the first, end of the third, when Steve Kerr typically goes with Steph Curry and four relative non-shooters out there. What can Steve Kerr do to come back schematically, some little looks or wrinkles that they might provide to take advantage of the way that Toronto is playing them, if they do go to that again, which who knows? Maybe they not Maybe we're spending a ton of time on this and, and it's a total waste, but I, I think it's fascinating to see that at, at this high of a level. For sure. I mean, at
1: the very least, the, the seed's been planted in Steve Kerr's head, right? That he needs to prepare his team in case they're in the same situation, right? Not being able to tell the future. Who knows, right? Well, so, real quickly, now,
0: uh, yeah, like if you've got two days between games, you're probably going to have, you know, maybe one practice ish you know but as banged up as they are they're not going to do much i I would imagine you know another day is a travel day uh like how much time do you actually spend on this is it just okay five minutes here's a, a couple of clips here's like three or four things that we could do and you just tell the team that do you actually get to the point of going out on the floor and walking through it for something like that where it's like all right you know they might run this for Eight minutes a game at most, if they even do that. How much time can you spend on that, and what do you do as a coach?
1: Yeah, you know, I think at at the le- at this level, and not only just this level, but at this stage of the season with this type of team, right? When it comes to you know man to man, when it's just Steph and Clay, or only Steph in the game, they are a fairly well-oiled machine. When you add Kevin Durant, and we know that kind of their dichotomy changes just a little bit in terms of kind of how they attack. And how they kind of pick their spots with who is the primary initiator, playmaker, uh, you know, sort of score, whatever the case may be. But I think with two days in between the games, you know, it's going to take place on film. So for sure, they're going to review it on film. Um, it's going to take place uh, to a degree individually on film, too, with, you know, their individual coaches kind of reviewing different things based upon what the coaching staff, uh, you know, has to say after their meetings. Uh, and then so, you know, so, get so the- quickly,
0: like, so is that sort of like, you know, one of uh, maybe I, I don't know who works with him, but if it's Jaron Collins, since he's a big man t- talking to DeMarcus Cousins, he might say, hey, DeMarcus, you know, we're going to one of the things we are do is you're going to screen for stuff. And then, you know, because they had one play where he screened for stuff and the then slipped, yeah. it, slipped it to the basket, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it just like kind of here's three or four things that you can kind of do that you have in your head. That's kind of what those conversations are like.
1: Exactly. So I think it'll start in the coaches meeting, right? So they'll kind of formulate whatever their plan is and they'll look at the clips. And then from there, like all the coaches will have an understanding of what the message is coming out of that. And then you'll flow to most likely like a team uh, session where you're kind of reviewing it from that macro perspective. And then on the individual level, exactly whoever it is, is Jaron Collins, whoever it is, gets with, uh, with Boogie and says, Hey, like, you know, the big thing for you is that you've got to be an extreme threat after you screen, you know, you slipped to the basket that one time. You caught the ball. You made the extra pass to Iggy, but you're right under the basket, right? We need you to be more aggressive there, or whatever that, whatever the adjustment is, right? Insert, you know, adjustment here. Um, and when you look at the actual adjustment based upon, you know, the clips where, you know, I don't think they made a shot until Iggy knocked down that last shot um, against the box and one. Um, when you look at when you look at that, uh, all the clips together, I think that the big thing that stands out is when Steph's in the game under these circumstances, right, he was still kind of the vocal point, which we know he's going to be, but the rest of the game, the rest of it kind of just fell a little bit more stagnant than maybe it normally feels during man-to-man with weak side movement and other guys looking to be aggressive. And that typically happens at the end of the game anyways. Crunch time, the ball tends to find, you know, whoever your top players are. But against a box and one now, when we've got two bodies committed to Steph in certain situations these other guys are going to have to be a little bit more aggressive. And there was a time when we saw a Boogie pin in, or actually it was Iguodala who pinned in, I think, a soul. The pass went to Quinn Cook. He had a fairly good look, turned it down, and then through or three more passes, resulted in an even worse look. So you turned down a good look to get, you know, a below average look. Um, and, you know, with Iggy on that extra pass coming from, from, uh, from Boogie Cousins, right, Iggy stayed up near the wing area, high quad area, instead of drifting down to the corner. If he drifts to the corner now, it's a longer closeout for Siakam. That makes it harder for Danny Green to play two and then ultimately get back and contest the Quinn Cook three. right? So you're looking at it from that type of perspective. And what I would say to these guys is let's run our man-to-man offense and let's run it like we're going against a man-to-man. When we find an advantage situation, just like they would against a man-to-man offense, we need to take advantage of it, whether it's a slip on the weak side, an open three for you know, Iguadala unguarded. We've got to just play our game.
0: Yeah. And maybe that's, a, there's a feeling with the warriors. It seems like maybe even more so than other teams. And I think Toronto is kind of like this to an extent too, where you want to move the ball around and feel like when you are taking the shot, if you're Andre Iguodala, you're doing it as a result of some action that has gotten you an open look and that you just, I, I, you could speak to this too, that it seems to me that players, especially kind of veteran guys who really, want to play the right way Gasol is like this too to me where he's happy to shoot it if it comes off of some nice action and they kick it out to him he's open for a three he doesn't necessarily want to take it when it's just okay you threw it to me and we didn't really do much and now they're just leaving me open
1: yeah exactly I mean you're putting him in an awkward uh situation right and that's kind of like I think the whole point of that defense is to put you know you're essentially I call it the reverse box score theory right when you look at the box score at the end of the night You know, and during these different segments, you can kind of segment like the box scores are coming at timeouts and all that type of stuff. And you say, okay, during these time periods of time where Steph is the only guy on the floor. Right. We are, you know, Iguodala makes, you know, four threes. We live with that. But we're going to stick with our strategy. Right. Then, then you can live with the results there. Yeah, because you unless you're the, the Houston outcome.
0: Rockets in Game Six, and then and then, and then you're going it, a well, play. See, But, you but know, I mean, it, they got to be so exactly. mad about that still <laughs> that he made five. Uh, I mean,
1: what was game. it a one in one billion odd chance for them to go? Yeah. You know, whatever they shot from three right there too. You know what I mean? Like it's just perfect storm
0: came together at the right yeah. time. Seems like but, it happens. to you know, when you're every looking, year, especially for for a team dang. that loves playing the math. I know you're in that organization, but uh, yeah, it, it seems like these. Uh, Terrible, improbable math events seem to happen to them all the time I, I don't know whether there's anything that really causes that or whether it's just bad luck or what, but
1: you know i I think if you ask Daryl, he'll probably hope that you know it's just uh just a little bit of bad luck and that the numbers will play out in the long run, I and mean, that means that he's looking forward to the next two years right getting it back <laughs> but um I don't know that that's going to be the case right you know hope is not a strategy, <laughs> so we'll we'll see on that end. I think from the purpose of looking at the at the NBA finals here, right? You're Nick Nurse. I think it was a genius strategy, yeah. especially in a game where you were down, you know, that 18-0 run just kind of killed any momentum you had, and he needed to try and find a way to get close to the victory, and you were right there. So will that be a long-term strategy? No, and I think he knows that. So now it's about what's next.
0: Yeah, well, so uh, that's a good question then. I mean, what do you see going forward uh, as uh, some of the biggest issues that, that each of these teams uh, have to deal with?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we obviously know the injury bug here hitting Golden State. I mean, what they've been great at, it's been a next-man-up scenario where guys have made big shots at big moments, whether it's Alfonso McKinney, whether it's a Quint Cook, whether it's, uh, you know, Igudala, who we know is a veteran and, and kind of has a reputation for making those big plays. But, you know, it, it becomes kind of how are you going to play uh, Steph Curry, off-ball actions, how are you going to play dribble handoffs, how are you going to play pick and roll? Now, it's going to be really important to understand if Clay is or is not available. Now, if and when we say, okay, Steph's in there by himself, right? Raptors had a lot of success, and all year they were keeping their big men back in the pick and roll, and they were one of the best in NBA at it. But now you see Marcus Gasol, who is one-time defensive player of the year, right? He is really getting out at the level, past the level of the screen, forcing Steph Curry to either take a bounce backwards towards towards the other goal or to just get off the ball altogether. That it creates an advantage situation somewhere else, but again, with the reverse box score theory, right? You're just going to try to play the numbers and hope that that something good happens elsewhere. Um, and to me, I think sticking with that for them is probably a good good idea. Even with Clay in the game, yeah. I think they were having success with that. And to me, then it becomes about you know who's guarding who uh, away from the ball. Like for instance, when we beat the Warriors this year, and they had you know all three they had everybody available. Um, you know what we were looking to do is. Make sure that, you know, if you were guarding what we call the muck guy, right, you were kind of a rover. So you weren't hugging your man on the weak side. You were anticipating a rotation, um, you know, and almost even loading uh, past, the, past the lane to avoid defensive three seconds to the strong side. You know, so, you know, once we committed two to the ball, we were able to force and kind of manipulate who was making the play or who was shooting the shot.
0: Yeah, and it seems like especially if Clay is unavailable, that that's something that they should look for. Real quick, small thing here: Toronto has given up, I think maybe like five or six layups or dunks off of Steph back screens, where they just mm-hmm. you know Van Vliet, who has done a good job limiting Steph or, or Danny Green, that when they ran that their, their cyclone play that that they love in the third quarter of yeah. Game Three, just not wanting to leave. Steph's body to help in a back screen. I mean, that's normally what you're taught at the basic levels. If someone sets the back screen, you got to help until that guy recovers or you're going to give up a layup. But because of Steph's gravity, they don't want to do that. The box in one was one way, obviously, to, to take that away, to ensure that you're always going to have someone under the basket uh, on that backdoor situation. But assuming that they're not going back to that, what else can you do because you know, obviously, you don't want to leave Steph spot either, because then he's going to pop out and, and get an open three.
1: Yeah. So that side clone, clone play is—I mean, it's it's just a great play, right? And you, it catches guys off guard. Yeah. It, just, it, it works all the time. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's that,
0: usually they throw it to usually Clay in the corner, and then Draymond exactly. will, will receive a back screen from Steph. They got to dunk off shooter. it in the third quarter. People and, and like
1: too, like you, you, when Steph comes together, yeah, they did. And when Steph comes together with Clay there too. That's almost like a like a live screen, also. So Clay can come off and shoot that shot. Yeah, you've lifted Bogut to the elbow on that particular play, right? So now you suck the five man out up, and now you've you've essentially opened up the entire backside. So now it becomes like, hey, are they going to talk and figure out, you know, how they're switching if they're switching, and then if it is a switch, then you know Draymond's got a small, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a tough one, right? And, and I think at that particular time, that is a you know a special situation that. Probably, right, if you can recognize it, I would have my five-man completely muck, Yeah. right? I'd have my five-man drop all the way back near the restricted, load even over towards the strong side block, like say, hey, let's let Bogut catch this ball at the elbow, like we're good with that, Uh, and then go from there continue defending. Um, It's a risky proposition, right, to kind of switch with the four, depending on who is there and at what time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, But in the same sense, like when you're talking about those other kind of organic back screens they set kind of in their delay formation – ball goes through the trail and you've got like the corner guy coming up and he acts like he's setting a flare screen and he just kind of curls into the middle right and you just it's like it's like the parting of the red sea on those ones right there it becomes a lot harder because you're oftentimes looking at like size screens and if you're asking me what the easiest way to negate the advantage is i'm going to tell you it's probably to switch yeah. but then it becomes hey you've got to come together in your switches you know and, and kind of one of my favorite terms is talk and touch it switch it, grab it. Right. So it's like, you've got to talk, you've got to come together where not just are you, you know, you've got to come together. We are able to touch almost your teammate. Right. So we really close the gap. Right. And then you've got to switch and then you've got to grab and almost be physical
0: yeah. with D- your don't opponent once you do that, so.
1: Though. Oh, exactly. Exactly. But we all know <laughs> it's a wrestling, Hey, it's a wrestling match out there. Um, and you know, you, you get away with that as physically as you can. And it's the same thing when you see teams like switching these dribble handoffs, right? So if I'm guarding the guy with the ball, and he's going to go hand it off, and I'm going to switch. At the last minute, what you'll notice is the guy who's guarding the handoff guy who has the ball will kind of push the guy who's handing it to the other guy. And that just makes him uh, lift his level just a hair, which allows the guy who's trailing the player who's going to end up switching onto the handoff guy to get below, right? So that you can't yeah. kind of hand off and slip underneath. And those are kind of the little strategies and tweaks and ways that you're able to kind of come together switch, and try to prevent that slip advantage, whether it's on those handoffs, which they're really good at, or coming off ball, particularly with the flare action.
0: Yeah, you mentioned, by the way, real real quickly, uh, delay action. Can you just explain what to uh, our listeners may not be familiar with what that is? Yeah, so
1: delay action, we'll see both teams run it. Um, A lot of times it's happening in some sort of secondary break, right, where rather than, you know, running their big, maybe the big outlet of the ball, you're going to see kind of a U formation. It's a five-out setup. And immediately when the point guard, rather than using the ball screen, he passes to the trail man. That's initiating delay action. From there, there's, you know, all different teams have different ways that they set it up. The guard can chase after it. You can can engage in some form of, you know, pin down back screen action, some split action. You know, you can even set ball screens for your five, which is something that the Denver Nuggets like to do for Jokic a lot. It catches guys off guard because now your guard is in pick and roll coverage. You know, so there's just a bunch of different things you can do out of that formation and what it is is it's it's a conceptual organic type of an offense that where it where, where it uh it can have its advantages is it's not a specific set play so it's not like this is our primary option this is our secondary option it's a formation and we're just kind of playing basketball out of it the great teams are able to find organic scoring opportunities
0: through it so really when you if you're watching as a fan if you see the point guard or the ball handler in like a semi-transition secondary break situation throw it back to the big uh, above the three-point line uh, at the top and then the middle is open essentially and and guys are arrayed around the three-point line they'll start interacting screening for each other in some fashion that's that's really what you're talking about there
1: yep that is exactly correct and that could be Draymond in the trail position which he's obviously a deadly passer from that and even you know in one of their uh one of the, those box and one sets, they started to kind of go to it, and Draymond penetrated, and he could have dropped a bounce pass to Boogie. Instead, he tried the shovel pass that went out of bounds. Um, but, yeah, that's that formation, correct.
0: Uh, all right, anything else that's just stuck out to you uh, uh, about this series? I wanted to talk more to you uh, about the player development side. But, uh, you know, yeah. as is my want, we get into the weeds a, a little bit. But just to, in a general sense, anything that's uh, stuck out to you that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the performance of Pascal Siakam in the first game was outstanding. The performance of Fred Van Vliet, um, you know, kind of all the way through here on both sides of the ball, right, whether it's from, you know, after – since the birth of his child to knocking <laughs> down those threes and those types of things. I mean, it's pretty remarkable kind of to see how the Toronto Raptors having these guys step up. And then you look at a guy like Kyle Lowry who is just dominating from a from a defensive standpoint without dominating the box score and not playing particularly efficient. I think if Lowry ups his offensive game, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how do the minutes then kind of interact here with these guys in terms of like Van Vliet and how he's able to kind of find, you know, his run. Cause when you've got two smalls on the floor at the same time, right, that works depending on, you know, certain lineups, but for other lineups, it could be, could be difficult. So I think it'll be interesting to see how Nick nurse, what kind of rotations he goes to uh, with that. See, you know, if we see any more of, you know, a Norman Powell and how much we see of a because, Right now, he's had six guys playing, you know, all over thirty, you know, thirty-three minutes, you know, a night, and that's that's pretty difficult
0: for Golden State. Let's say KDE can't play in Game Three and Clay can't play in Game Three. You're going to have still Steph, Iguadala, Draymond, Cousins. If you're closing the game in the critical moments, who do you think is the fifth guy that you want to go to on Golden State, uh, and what what are some of the, the pluses and minuses of, of those guys, maybe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to have to be a feel based on kind of who's got his going. But I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit more of Jonas Rebko, see what he can't do and fit in. He's a guy who, you know, down, I mean, if you remember that Utah game earlier, he was playing his old team, right? He gets the tip in at the buzzer. Yeah, Like that's the type of guy that he kind of is in crunch time situations right now. If you feel like you need to go more towards, you know, a scoring Standpoint, obviously, I think we saw a quick cut closing this game. That's not, you know, a, a, an outrageous one to look at. And then, depending on if Alfonso McKinney's knocking down shots or not, right? He's there as well. Um, it kind of seems to me like, you know, the the the, the guys who we know are going to be in, regardless of how they're shooting or whatever, are going to have to be, you know, Iguadala, Green. Um, you know, the Cousins one is interesting. We'll see what's up with Looney, but you know, that's an interesting dilemma too because it kind of slows you down a little bit. Um, But outside of those guys and Steph, right, I think that what we'll see is Steve Kerr early in the game kind of mess with the rotations and figure out who's got a little bit of a rhythm, and then down at the end when he's trying to close the game, right, he's going to go to whoever has it rolling.
0: Yeah, uh, really between Cook, Livingston, McKinney, uh, and Jarebko. I'm a little bit lower on Jarebko just having watched him all all year. I think he he just struggles to hold up defensively from a foot speed standpoint. Um, Agreed. Uh, but and McKinney though it's it's tough for him too. You know he's a great rebounder and his shot kind of waxes and wanes. He can finish around the room but he also uh, I think struggles in individual defense uh, when he's the only guy who can guard Kawhi. Maybe he looks better if you can put Andre or, or Draymond on him, and then Cook to me is easily the best offensive option. But you, you worry about the size defensively there. But if they're going with Lowry and Van Vliet maybe that becomes a, a little bit more tenable. I think if to me. I think I would probably go with Cook ultimately, just because I, I trust him the most of all those players. Like all those players are limited; they only have certain things that they can do. But I think that the one thing that he does, which is shoot the ball and you know maybe provide a little bit of secondary playmaking, I think he does that at a higher level than any of the other guys do the things that they're supposed to do. So that's probably why I would end up with him. But it's it's not an easy decision when you've got you know, three or six best players out.
1: Not at all, and I think that. You know, if the Raptors are going with a small lineup uh, like we talked about with uh, Lowry and Van Vliet, it makes it much easier to rock with a with a Quinn Cook. You know, um, if you've got you know Norman Powell out there with one of those guys, and we've seen Norman, he's been able to get it going at certain stretches as well, where like you know he's shooting forty plus percent from three in like the playoffs, and you're looking at at him with a strong body that becomes harder for any of those guys to 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 defend. So then maybe you're just hoping better offense beats defense.
0: All right. well we got much more to get to here uh, with cody uh, right after this certainly there are many guys who are not particularly interested in opening up to a doctor in person about issues that you might be having with performance uh, but with four hims.com the wellness brand for men you can get access to physician consultations and prescription treatments online uh, whether it's a uh, Sexual wellness or for hair loss, hymns is the easiest solution to obtain real medical treatment and medications. If you go to forhims.com, they'll connect you with the doctor online who can evaluate you and help identify the right treatment for you. And then it gets delivered right to your door in discreet packaging. You don't have to waste a bunch of time going to the doctor. You don't have to deal with the awkwardness. If you want to slow your roll and make the good times last, or if you're interested in hair loss solutions, go to forhims.com. I've used Finasteride from HIMS as a way to keep my hair. I've actually been using Finasteride for almost 15 years now, since I was 25 and started to know. Notice uh, my hairline receding a little bit at my temples, but hymns is... By far the best way that I have found to get treatment for hair loss. Right now, my listeners get a special offer. You can get started for just $10 with HIMS at forhymns.com himscom slash dunkedon. Different URL for this one, dunkedon. D-U-N-C-D-O-N. Forhymns.com slash slash dunkedon. See website for full details and safety information. That's f r h i m s dot com slash all right, so now I want to turn to the player development side. You were the player development coach for the Phoenix Suns this year, and I know you worked a lot with Devin Booker specifically. Um, But just it, it, starting with some of your general philosophies uh, as a player development guy, um I wanted to focus on Pascal Siakam. He's been probably going to win most improved player this year, started as someone who was thought of as pretty non-skilled coming out of a uh, New Mexico state, what has impressed you the most uh, about his development uh, over the last three years from where he started?
1: Well, I had a, I had a front row seat to the deciding game of the G league, uh, championship. Uh, I guess, you know, it was that three years ago now when he went for 30 something points and, and, and beat our rockets G league team. Um, in an unbelievable performance, him and Van Vliet. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately this year too, was on the wrong end of a left-handed layup as the buzzer goes off to beat our Suns team this year. And um, I'm not particularly surprised at how far he's come. I also scouted him uh, when he was at New Mexico State. And the big thing to me that has always stood about about him is his activity. And I think that what we're seeing now is where – Uh, motor and activity are starting to kind of meet in a perfect storm of simple playmaking and skill. And uh, then confidence kind of takes it to the next level. And I think in terms of player development, there's organic player development that's going to take place. You know, if a guy just sees a certain situation over and over again, he's going to become more familiar in that situation. And you would expect that, you know, being more familiar in the situation, whether he's had positive or negative results in the past, will just kind of allow him to, organically become a better decision maker in those situations great player development I think kind of reduces that learning learning curve right so whereas you might see a situation a hundred times and familiarize with it organically if you can recreate these certain situations in player development environments and recreate decision making and build confidence and teach concepts uh, as well uh, giving guys solutions in different you know scenarios then you can kind of reduce that learning curve and hopefully, you know accelerate that player's uh development um it's pretty astounding to see what siakam's done uh i agree you know most improved player and 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 what he's doing right now is definitely uh is definitely remarkable
0: so you mentioned the idea of putting him in those situations in player development to help decision making nobody that i know of really goes five on five in, in player development situations maybe that's something that that should be considered you could just have an army of guys to nine guys out there every time you do player development. But as far as I know, nobody's doing that yet. And that's probably unrealistic. But what can you do then in these practice situations when you're doing what's you know individual work or maybe with two guys to simulate the stuff that they're seeing in a game?
1: The way I look at it, typically the game comes down to a score pass pass decision, right? So not all five guys are involved. Um, that would be great to have an arsenal of, you know, an arsenal of interns or something running around. Player development like, guys, just I don't understand yeah. why nobody has done that.
0: By the way, I mean, it doesn't well, like...
1: you know, Dallas Mavericks have the most player development. I think they have ten, but I don't know how they structure their deal. Um, you know, definitely, yeah, that's that. That would be something else. But when you look at it from most offensive actions or concepts, are going to involve two or three guys, right? You know, if you're running a pick and roll, too, right? Your goal when running the pick and roll, depending on what the opponent's coverage is, is hey. Like, can we get two guys to commit to the ball? Can we force them to introduce a third defender uh, into the pick and roll coverage, and then can we create a closeout or get an open shot off of one pass? And so, for me, when I talk about score, pass, pass decisions, right? Um, it, it's you know drills where you may have two players, you may have one player. Probably would require multiple coaches for sure. I mean, NBA teams have have a depth of you know at least a bigger bigger staffs than than most uh, youth organizations and whatnot. But in the same sense right, you put bodies on the ball, you put bodies in front of the ball, uh, you script the decisions, that's as as what I you usually call it, and then you read the decisions, right? So scripting, it means, you know, when we come off of a pick and roll or a handoff or a split screen or a pin down, right, we need to, you know, be able to see, obviously, the scoring, the scoring options, right? So you've got your, your score score decision, then, you know, you practice that, and you rep it out, you rep it out, then, you know, if it's a ball screen or if it's a handoff, now, you know, kind of your next your secondary checkdown almost like if your quarterback becomes uh, to the guy who set the screen for you, right? Your screener, right? Who's rolling uh, and hopefully like trying to dive in. And if you've got two guys to commit to you, then that opens up your pocket passes, your lob passes, your hook passes and things of that nature. And then the third level would be, say, you're doing some kind of a screen and roll action. And now your big man rolls so hard with such dynamic gravity that the tag man pulls in from the weak side to try and tag him. And now you've got a shooter shaking out of the corner and you've got to be able to make that off the dribble hook pass. So once we've kind of reviewed all those different reads and we might do a drill, that's solely going to have, Hey, we're coming off. We're attacking the pick and roll. We're throwing the hook pass. We're saying the tag man's in, and now we're relocating for some more shots because I think the secondary action of the game is, you know, when Steph Curry makes a pass is when he's most deadly. Yeah. Um. You know, so now, once we practice all those and we say, hey, we're going to read it, we will just have maybe it could be two players out there and a coach as offense. It could be three players on offense. And then we want to defend all these positions. And as coaches, we kind of force the read. Right. And they have to make the right read in order for the solution to count. And then from there, it becomes about what's next, what's next, what's next. So if we're playing this sort of, you know, dummy defense, but a little bit more than dummy defense, I call them kind of simulations. Right. And we go under the ball screen, right? Then we're expecting that the screener is going to set, you know, he's going to rescreen. We expect that he's going to gain ground. He's going to forward pivot. So they can't go under again. We expect then that we're going to try to commit two to the ball and that he's going to forward pivot out of his role. And so we can kind of force and manipulate so that we know, Hey, like the appropriate decision there is going to be that pocket pass. And it's our player's responsibility to make the pass. And then rather than just get one shot out of that action, Right. If the big man shoots the shot and the read is not the hook pass to the third offensive player, we're just we're popping back out and now we're playing drive and kick with the other two guys. Right. Or if score is the option, now the next ball fires in and we're playing pick and roll again and we gotta make another read. So we're trying to comp compound decisions and put these guys in that kind of chaotic environment that they'll see in the game to hopefully again reduce that learning curve. Yeah,
0: thanks. think that was the uh awesome detail there another thing that's really excited me about pascal is how well he's improved his finishing at at the basket i mean his touch you know on those kind of floaters along the lane line off the glass both hands uh, off spin moves and what can players do what can coaching staffs do what are some of your favorite drills to improve finishing you know i'll see kind of the when i watch teams work out before games the all right, we're going to put the pads on you uh, as you're going up. Um, But what are some of your favorite drills to help guys get better at finishing, dealing with contact? Because that's something that really, it's tough because it takes a live, you know, you you can't really kind of do that at half speed. You know, it's kind of got to be game speed, I think, to really understand it. But then you also, you know, in the season, how many guys, especially who are playing big minutes, can do that type of stuff at game speed in practice, you know, that's another question.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you're as, you know, at the NBA level, you're you're always kind of balancing player development with load management with, you know, obviously schedule management uh, and all those types of things. And I think for me, right, I look at finishing from two perspectives, right? There's confrontational finishing and there's separational finishing, mm-hmm. right? So confrontational finishing is kind of more finishing through physicality, finishing through legal contact. Uh, and learning how to be on balance and have all kinds of different finishes around the basket in those types of intermediate areas in the paint, right, definitely requires let's get the pad out there and all those types of things. Separational finishing for me is is typically when you're going to try to attack, but then you're going to try to create space before the finish, right? And those are going to be kind of like your Eurostep type moves. I think what we see in today's game now is an unbelievable ability for these highest high-level players, high-level finishers, right, to really take moves that typically a layup used to be inside foot, outside hand, right? But now yeah. we see guys going, you know, outside foot, outside hand, you know, outside foot, inside hand, you know, inside foot, outside hand. So they're kind of putting it all together. And then really what you've got too is, you know, with all the shot blockers, like a, you know, if you've got, you know, um, if you've got Gobert go rotating over right now, you're not bringing two hands to the ball either at times, right? So you're just kind of scooping and trying to go, We call it a goofy foot finish, same foot, same leg, like under a shot blocker, right? And, you know, you've got to practice these game speed for sure, but your touch around the basket at times can just be practiced without pads, without bodies. It's just kind of a rhythm. It's kind of like shooting form shots, right, where you're just kind of like getting it. It's almost a ballet. It's a dance. You're getting it down. Boom. Right, right pound dribble, right foot, right finish. So it's right, right, right. And you kind of go back and you're working on your touch around the basket, especially when you're working with your offhand with Devin Booker. He had hand surgery this year. So there was a point in time where all we did were left-handed drills and he kind of has turned himself into one of the best offhand finishers in the league. And like with Pascal, what we're seeing are these graceful Euro step finishes to avoid charges, to avoid fouls. And then an unbelievable touch, right? Where he's, he's going off the glass from all different angles. uh, If he's going to go around towards the baseline area or, he's just dropping these teardrops in towards the middle. And that takes, you know, that takes hours and hours, not necessarily pads. Doesn't have to always be full speed, right? You've got to kind of find that happy medium, but it certainly doesn't happen without a tremendous amount of practice and work at those shots. Those are very difficult shots. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have a little element of finishing almost in everything you do. Uh, A a lot of teams, uh, you know, use the term vitamins, right? Where, you know, you've got to take your vitamins every day. With some drills, I use the term brushing your teeth, right? Some terms, some drills, I use the term water in the plants, right? These are things that you just have to do to really make sure that you are going to be at your best when it counts.
0: So you, you mentioned Booker and the hand injury that, that he had and working on his left hand when the, the right hand was injured. Uh, what were some of the things other than that that you worked on with him the most this season, you know, I, I thought he really took some strides in terms of getting to the basket and uh, reducing his mid range rate. Uh, but how were you able to number one, impart to him that, Hey, maybe you shouldn't take as many mid range shots uh, as you were. And number two, what did you work on with him to kind of give him another alternative from that?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the first thing it started with, you know, building a relationship and building trust with him and then kind of showing him some, some information, right, about where he was at in terms of points produced overall uh, and comparing him to some of the upper echelon guards like the Russell Westbrooks, like the Damian Lillards, like the James Hardens. And, you know, from there, looking at shot charts of these highly efficient, you know, top tier level guards. And when you kind of look at a lot of, uh, you know, the similarities between him and specifically Damian and James Harden, right, was, you know, his ability to kind of create, but also his ability to score. And then kind of once we built a relationship and I kind of showed him a plan of attack, a blueprint, you know, it was to his credit that he bought it. And, you know, we were no longer just pulling up for 18 foot step back fadeaways. Those are extremely difficult shots. So then it was about getting into the paint and getting on balance. We used the term kill boxes, which was about attacking certain spots in the paint and getting on balance to pull up for those shots
0: yeah and he's got that high uh, release he can kind of he can jump over guys uh from those spots
1: so what he does is he's great at having like this this uh this rhythm dribble once he gets into the paint and he uses that rhythm dribble to attack the spot get his balance and then go up and knock down the shot and then the other thing that we were really working on uh too was you know a situation where you know off the dribble three-point shot you know, has become deadly. If you're going to avoid mid-range shots, you've got to have a solution, a different solution. A lot of teams right now are keeping their big men back in the pick and roll. Their goal is to play the pick and roll two on two and not introduce that third defender to come in and tag. So when teams want to do that, right now you've got to have that intermediate solution. Otherwise, the defense is going to try to funnel you into the mid-range shot. They're going to try to go over the ball screen and kind of put this pressure on you from the the rear view and kind of force you inside the three-point line and then, you know, the big man's going to kind of build a wall there and kind of just try to funnel you into these bad shots. So, you know, we worked a lot on off-the-dribble pull-up threes. Now, those are high-degree difficulty shots. And I know for him this summer, he's going to be working on those a lot because the better he gets at that shot, the more efficient he's going to be.
0: Quick, quick question for you as an aside. Why is it harder to shoot a three-pointer off the dribble than a, on a spot-up?
1: Yeah, I think because... You know, when you dribble the ball, what tends to happen is like you're obviously going to extend your hand down towards the floor. The ball is going to be removed from your body. And then as the ball is removed from your body, um, as the ball is removed from your body, the ball has to come back up into your shot pocket. You've got to find it with the other hand. And you've got to do all this while evaluating different decisions, whether they're past decisions in the pick and roll or off the bounce. Right, rotating defenders, and then you've got to find the rim. So your eyes then have to be able to explore back up, and then get to an on-balance square position and shoot the shot. There's just more moving parts altogether with off-the-bounce three-point shooting.
0: Yeah, and you're just you're by definition almost you know unless you're doing just like a quick like one dribble replace off a closeout, you know you're on the move. Which uh, a lot of times when you're spotting up, you're not unless unless you're JJ Redick or Clay or Steph or someone like that.
1: For sure. And and so there's the deceleration aspect, the footwork aspect, the balance aspect. And so it all comes together, makes it a difficult shot. Um, I think it's for, you know, for the top players, the guys who master that shot, it really opens up a whole level, another level of efficiency, because as we know, if you can shoot that shot, you know, over 33 percent, that's the same as shooting your intermediate pull up at 50 percent. Right. So you start playing the numbers on that. And hopefully if you're an elite shooter like Devin Booker, you're going to shoot that shot off the dribble three point pull up with the big back. It's open not contested right so you're going to try to push that to you know a 38 plus percent shot and if that's the case you can kind of you know manipulate the coverage because the team's going to have to probably change what their strategy is to to beat you there um
0: yeah and, and one that's other, actually you, one thing I was most impressed by with Devin this year was that it seemed like for me this year for the first time he was not only scoring a lot but driving efficient offense for the team uh, you know to yes. where We didn't see huge on-off differentials. As I recall, you can correct me if I'm wrong there in previous years with him on the floor offensively. And this year, you know, obviously there was a, you didn't have an experienced point guard solution for most of the year as well for when he was off the floor. But, you know, I think you guys are pretty close to league average when he was on the floor and, you know, pretty much uh, worse in the league when he was off the floor. So the the fact (laughs) that he was able to manipulate the defense, set others up, actually drive efficient offense for the whole team, I thought was a big step forward for him this year. For
1: sure. So some things that, that we looked at, right, um, per 36, I mean, he essentially uh, contributed almost 44 points per game per night to our team, right, scored or assisted. Um, and even looking even further towards uh, a metric called quantified shooter impact is the amount of high quality shots that he was creating for us was even above that, you know, so that takes into account, you know, if an, uh, if, if an average shooter is shooting this particular shot, he might shoot, 35 percent based on these particular conditions, you know, X, Y proximity of the defense to him, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, did did our team shoot below expected on these shots? So he was producing high, high quality shots for us. The other thing that he was doing was he was drawing fouls and in the foul line at at an elite rate. He averaged, you know, just over seven free throws per game, uh, which was in the 99th percentile. But he averaged nine point three free throws per game after all star break, which was second in the NBA. And what we did there was we actually practiced drawing fouls. That was something that I got from from Houston in terms of oh, oh, James did Harden. You? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But the funny
1: thing is, the funny hey, thing hey, is I this, know, right? Yeah. So
0: yeah, go ahead. well, I mean, I, I and I, I say that as kind of a fan perspective, but obviously, if I were in your position, I'd absolutely. I mean, I, I say all the time, like people, there's a lot, a lot of players who need to get better at drawing fouls and so i i i joke about that from more of a fan perspective but i mean it's obviously yeah. that every player should be working on. i didn't mean, need to disparage it in that way but it's a strategy yeah
1: it's a strategy for sure and like you know they're not you know doing drills and Houston necessarily like to practice like drawing fouls but james harden i mean i'd be guarding him in certain drills and like he'd go in and he'd like scoop my hands and like it's a foul you know what i mean and he'd just yeah. be kind of practicing that himself and so you know, we kind of put together a little curriculum of what we called and one drills where, you know, now we are hunting the hands of the weak side defenders. Right. So if there's a nailed guy, he's in there swiping at the ball, Boom! entering the LDB, scoop his hand, shoot the shot. Right. Get and one get to the free throw line. Um, or, you know, we could even we can even scoop the hands on the ball where the guys hand checking you. Right. And you see that one with Harden a lot as well. And Book really kind of mastered that as well. Guys hand checking you rather than being confrontational to kind of push away from him. You kind of make him feel comfortable and you scoop his inside hand as you're going up for a shot foul Um, or things that you can see even with like really, really high IQ players like bingo situations where if you're in the bonus and there's a pick and roll run even 25 feet from the basket and the defense, when a pick and roll coverage is called, what most teams are doing is trying to find locks, right? And And the kind of concept is you want to hit the ball handler before the screen hits you. To try to allow yourself to get smaller, get skinnier, and get through that screen. And if a guy leads with his arm right there, you can just sweep it, sweep it 25 feet from the basket. It's not a shooting foul, but if you're in the bonus, it's two free throws, right? Two points are two points.
0: Um, well, and, and, these and, are... and it's also you're taking advantage of illegal contact by the other exactly. team. Like they are using this illegal contact to make you less efficient. So it's really like, it's a constraint play where, uh, all right, if you're going to do this to me, I'm not going to let you get away with that. Now you got to play me honest and I could be more effective just playing straight up. Precisely,
1: precisely. And so to me, you know, the truly, truly great players like Devin, right. He not only has like, obviously like unbelievable athletic qualities, you know, he's got unbelievable skill, but really what they have is an unbelievable ability to kind of see a new concept new concept absorb it and then execute it at the highest levels with the shortest reactionary windows making the right decisions right in the right moment right and and doing being able to do that and be accelerated at that rather than it taking a month two months a year to implement this right Devin Booker his learning curve is so small that he was able to pick up on it very quickly and execute and you know we would even watch film that you know certain guys we knew that were that we're going to, you know, hand check him in certain ways and and kind of try to use that to our advantage. And then the other thing kind of with the with the hand injury, too, was passing with one hand. Right. Uh, you know, being able to make hook passes, skip passes, pocket passes with one hand off the bounce is is a very, very dynamic skill because the window so close so quick that when you identify the open man, you've got to really be able to react and pass immediately. So we practice a lot of those.
0: Yeah. Well so so you're saying you was it at the level where it's like, you know, you you guys practice something once or twice and he's using it in the game. Is it like that quick?
1: I would say for him in terms of like the passing stuff. Um Yeah, yeah or the foul was, drawing was, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean he, he you know, he yes, it was quick. It was very quick, right? And there were times he just kind of, you know, he'd acknowledge he'd point over and be like, Yeah, yep, we talked about that. We watched it on film before the game. Boom! Executed right there and then. Um, That's got to be really yeah.
0: satisfying a, as a coach for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, just to, just the fact that he was, you know, he was a sponge to all this type of stuff. That you know, the way I the way I kind of viewed it as was like try to approach that as like a quarterback's coach, right? Like, you know, really like, especially with like a guy who's like an elite playmaker, score or whatever. Like, there's always different decisions to be made, and it's about making the right ones, right? Whether it's to draw a foul, throw a pass, shoot a shot, or whatever, um, and you know, so Devin Booker, I don't, he doesn't need me to tell him, right, okay, you need to do a crossover through the legs till you buy this guy. No, no, no. He's got that solution, right? So then it becomes about kind of these little micro ways to help him find an edge over the competition. All
0: right, so uh, last question here. What are some of the metrics that you would really focus on when you're coming up with a plan for – a player to, to try and evaluate where he can get better when you're trying to decide, okay, what, what drills do we need to do? What skills do we need to improve? What are some of the things that you would look at the most, obviously that's going to be different for, for smalls and for bigs.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I kind of look at it and, seg- and divide it into segments. So the first segment's shot selection, just kind of getting an understanding of where is this guy getting his shots? What type of shots are they? And kind of where does he rank in terms of shooting those particular shots The next segment, you know, typically is going to be, you know, playmaking uh, and then, you know, playmaking kind of obviously getting teams involved pretty, pretty, you know, self-explanatory. Then I've got shooting. And then, you know, for a guard, usually it's pick and roll ball handling uh, at some point in time. And if it makes sense, you've got post play, you know, and for the bigs, you know, it doesn't it doesn't change significantly. Instead of like pick and roll ball handling, it's still like pick and roll. Typically, it's like screening and rolling. Playmaking can be you know, screener assists, setting wide pin downs, dribble handoff assists, things like that. Um, you know, and then from there, right, it's about kind of diving into the numbers. I mean, luckily at the NBA level, we have access through second spectrum to a tremendous amount of in-depth, uh, you know, kind of analytics that's going to allow us to understand what how good these guys are. And what I like to do is break it down month to month to really identify, see if we have it, if we're trending in the right direction on certain things, if we're trending in the wrong direction, or then if we start trending in the right direction. We have a dip kind of, why is that right? And kind of figure out how to bridge that gap. Um, And when it comes to these different, you know, shot selection metrics, you know, you've got what, what I kind of call like good, you know, good shot percentage in terms of what percentage of your, your shot distributions are coming from what we call high value zones, you know, which, how many are coming at the rim, you know, uh, corner threes above the break threes, foul line. And I kind of just have a pecking order, going down, right? So obviously the least efficient shots or at least valuable shots typically being, you know, non-paint two uh, step-back shots that we kind of alluded to and kind of evaluating that from that perspective. And then when it comes to playmaking, right, it comes, you know, passing, you know, points per possession on, you know, different stuff, whether it's closeouts, you know, whether it's off screens, off DHOs, those are some of the main ones as well as off cuts and relocations. And to me, like, how, how are you getting your teammates involved? Are you creating high quality looks? Um, And, you know, are are, our players finishing those high quality looks right too? because, you know, so are you making you might be making the right pass, but are you on time on target? There's always a video element to this as well. And then shooting same thing. It's broken down. Again, I get pretty micro with it and then try to circle back. Right. So shooting off screens, off DHOs, catching shoots, um, standstill shots, um, you know, holding jab shots, things like that. And then. From there, what I like to do is get into, like, pick and roll by coverage, right, and identify, you know, how efficient are you overall, how efficient are you as a scorer, how efficient are you as a passer to the screener, and how efficient are you as a passer to other receivers, and then kind of what quality shots are we getting, you know, in that. Uh, And then, you know, post play makes sense, then we're also look at post-ups, we can look at turnover rate, we can look at rate where we didn't get any sort of advantage, we can look at, you know, are we creating high quality shots, Um, and and all that type of stuff, and then circle back. Once I do that, then I try to identify maybe two weaknesses under each category and two strengths, and then really try to dive into, you know, okay, for Devin Booker this summer, what does he need to work on? You know, off the dribble, three-point shooting, in the pick and roll, going to his left. Three dribbles or more, he was significantly worse than one to two dribbles. So how can we get better at that shot? And that's how you can kind of craft an initial shell of a development plan and then from there you can kind of get more specific with okay we've identified what we need to do and now how are we going to attack attack that on a daily basis how many drills need to have non-contact how many need to have contact how many need to see bodies in front you know and how can we kind of help him become more instinctive in these situations
0: how the hell do you get players to be better at defense from like an individual player development standpoint whether it's as a big pick and roll defense or or uh yeah you know i think maybe for a small it might be a little easier you know when it's like you know getting over screen stuff like that but how do you get these guys better at defense it seems especially there when you can't get out there in a full team concept that it's got to be something that's very hard to simulate
1: great that is a great question i think passing and defense are the two most underpracticed skills in player development sessions even in small sided sessions um and i think that uh You know, we do guys a disservice by not locking in and trying to at least touch. In a lot of my workouts, I'm going to try to touch a little bit of defense, probably usually at least one drill, maybe two, depending on the day. Um, And how do we do that? Right. Well, you've got things like closeouts, pick and roll coverages. Um, You've got things like switches, you know, blowing up, up DHOs, whatever it is. Right. So what I like to try to do is I'd like to try to take a defensive drill that'll transition to an offensive drill. So, for instance, maybe you start with a nail closeout right, to a coach. And after the nail close out to the coach, the coach will back the, you know, back the dribble up. And now we're coming with a ball screen, right? So you got another coach setting a ball screen. And you got another coach, maybe he's the big guy or whatever, and he's calling the coverage. And now you've got to work on getting locked, getting over the screen, right, bothering the pass. And then in this particular drill, that comes to my mind that I love to use. Then we throw a pass to the popping big man, and now we're in a dribble handoff. So what's our coverage, right? If we're an under team, then we've got to get into the body. We've got to pass under the handoff and we've got to get back reattached. If we're a blow up team, right, then we're just going to lock and we're going to try to find a way to break the hip of the handoff guy and kind of blow through that screen. And then, you know, a lot of times, right, a lot of teams struggle at late switching. So if that guy comes off and turns the corner and the dribble handoff, now you've got to veer back into the big man and you've got to keep him off the glass. So I would do a drill where I incorporate all three of those skills. And after you box out the coach and keep me off the glass, you've got to snatch the rebound. And now maybe we're pushing it into some sort of offensive action. It can be a, could be a full court drill, or you're outletting the ball and then you're popping out on the on the weak side, and we're going into some sort of offensive action. Maybe it's a relocation shot series. Maybe it's a another handoff coming. Right. So we did defense, but we blended it into offense because in player development, right with two guys or one guy and, you know, two coaches, you can't really do shell drill and things like that. So you do your best to recreate these situations. And I think what I've noticed is guys get more comfortable the more you do this. Um, and it just kind of builds habits. It's just like watering the plants, right? Whether yeah. it's your form shooting, it's the same thing with your closeouts. It's the same thing with blowing up your dribble handoffs, getting physical on your veer backs, all that stuff.
0: Yeah. And I will say, I mean, now granted, I don't get a full view of everything that teams do but i usually try to get there early when i'm when i'm covering a game for the first boss for the opposing team so I, I can take a look at at what they're doing with the guys who are you know more developmental players who aren't going to play that night um I, it's rare that i will see them do much defensively and that's not to say that they're not doing that in practice and maybe there's just you know that's not when when they're doing it so i'm not saying that like other teams aren't doing this stuff but it does seem like there is not as much individual work done on defense uh, uh you know there are, I've seen it a few times but it, it is pretty rare that it, I'll see that stuff at least before games maybe that just you know it happens at another time
1: for sure I think that like I said and, and and working on passing are like kind of the two that you know if 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 you just sprinkle a little bit of that stuff in like it goes a long ways
0: all right man well I, I've kept you for too long here this was a fantastic uh, having you on and it'd be awesome to catch up uh, in Vegas this summer so uh, I'm looking forward to that
1: Yeah, always. Absolutely. Can't wait to catch up and looking forward to the rest of these games. Hopefully they're exciting. All right. Talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, man.
0: Yeah, that was fantastic.